Thank you so much, Mr. Mayor. Thank you all for coming. Um, I have two life updates. They're not mine, they're Lit's. He's actually married now to Jackie. <laughs> and they're getting two cats. It's true. How the are the goldfish? <laughs> the goldfish are great. Um, they're, uh, so I will say a lot of my book events, about five to ten minutes, have been me wanting to talk about my goldfish, uh, which I've discovered no one likes except me, so I will not do that. Um, but if anyone else is, for example, a, a common reader of the goldfish-tank.net, uh, a uh, classic blog for goldfish health and maintenance, um, we can talk after the, maybe during the book signing, we can talk about the goldfish. Oh, we can take these out. This is great. Yeah. I'm more handy with a microphone than Lit, because that was part of my job. Not yours. No. One time, uh, one of Lit's colleagues, you just got to kind of squeeze it out. Um, <laughs> one of Lit's wonderful colleagues, Terry Zublat, once said that um, we were sort of like, we were at this cocktail party at the end of the administration. He was like, oh, Beck's here, the stenographer, and we've got all these speechwriters. It's like the front and back end of the cow. And I was like, I don't know what that's saying for any of us, really. Yeah, n n no one's happy about that. Yeah, but thank you all for coming. Um, I, it, Lit's kind of the superstar. I feel like I'm sort of moderating for him. Uh, but I think a good way to start out, just in case you don't know who the David Lit is, is to explain what an Obama speechwriter does. Um, sure, and, and before we get started on that, I should just, so you were here, you said in July or August? It's yes. all a blur. It's all a blur. So, uh, was any is anyone has anyone already been here for when Beck was here before? Okay. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I will say I feel like we've both now done a variety of book events for our respective books. The way I've always thought about these is that I would just like to try to do events where you get to have a conversation with someone you'd want to talk with anyway. Um, and then if people show up, that's great. So first of all, a lot of people showed up, which is wonderful. Yeah. Um, and also it was really cool when they were like, the mayor of the city is also <laughs> a bookstore <laughs> owner. That was very cool. Uh, it's a great bookstore. And we went to Millworks. That's why we have these beers. We were so excited. And I got very distracted because there's all that wonderful jewelry. I was like, lit, I'll be there in a second. I just have to buy three things. Um, but this is, I, this is certainly the first... I don't know if you've done any other book events with former White House people, but this is very fun because I feel like the la certainly the last time we spent this amount of time together was on Air Force One, uh, and so I would usually be asleep. Uh, <laughs> and, and That's I not even close to real. It would be like, oh my God, I have to edit these remarks, and I have about seven seconds to do it yeah, all. Yeah, so actually this gets, uh, conveniently, is, uh, I can answer your question. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I, I will say, I think like a lot of people, I had no idea what a White House speechwriter did when I was growing up. And then I watched The West Wing. Um, I assume we have some fans of The West Wing. Uh, so that was the first time I ever had any conception of a White House speechwriter. And my job, I basically, the um, people would ask, like, are you Rob Lowe on The West Wing? And I would say, well, only in terms of looks, clearly. <laughs> uh, but... Basically, what, what we did, so I was part of a team of about eight people. Um, I was, when I started at the White House, I was at the most, uh, the junior most rung of the ladder. And then 
I was sort of, by the time I left, was kind of in the middle somewhere. And so a lot of what we did actually was not kind of sitting down and, and being sort of uh, brilliant and poetical and all of that. A lot of what we did was to sit down and say, what was the last thing President Obama said about education or infrastructure or whatever issue we worked on? And trying to figure out how to take the story that he had been telling and the message that he had been trying to convey and update it for the next event or the next moment in American life. And there were a lot of people involved in all of these speeches. So every speech we wrote would go through the chief speechwriter. And then, of course, it would go to the president. Um, if it was a, a typical speech, it would go to him the night before. But if it was a big speech, it might be a lot earlier. Uh, and then he would make edits, and then that we would end up on the plane, and I would be frantically trying to get those edits into the computer before we landed. And then on the way back, I would take a nap. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. Um, okay, hi, and I'm Beck, and I was uh, one of the White House stenographers. I was a group of five. There were three presidential, one for the vice president and one for the first lady. Um, and so my job was really to take those remarks, we would get them ahead of time from the wonderful speech writing team, and as the back end of the cow, we would then <laughs> type them up, uh, make any corrections, and put in the applause and the laughter, and that was for um, edited remarks. And then sometimes during a daily press briefing, we would have to type it real time, which was a little more daunting. Uh, but yeah, we were basically there to sit in on the conversations and the background briefings, the on the record and the off the record background briefings with the press. We are stenographers are serve this role of sort of bearing witness to anything that the press sees. And so we're kind of like the first line of defense to make sure the president isn't misquoted, which uh, is part of why I wrote a New York Times op-ed about how President Trump doesn't love stenographers because he keeps them out of the room intentionally because it can't be fake news if there's a transcript that says this is exactly what happened. Uh, so my role has changed, I think, since I left. I stayed for two months with President Trump. I wrote my epilogue about it. It's its own sort of, you know, two pages of fire and fury. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> uh, so I actually had, I feel like you've been, we were talking about this before, on tour for a long time now. And, uh, and so you've gotten all of these questions a million times. And I feel like my job was to come up with an original question. And I have totally failed. Uh, but I'm actually curious about because a lot of the interaction that um, I would have as a member of the speechwriting team was sort of in some way mediated with the president. So we weren't, I was not in, it wasn't like hanging out with the president all the time. Um, and they were specifically around speeches. And I think you were around him uh, more, and certainly more when he was speaking off the cuff. What is the thing that you think people who, the thing that most surprises you about Barack Obama that you wouldn't have expected or that, you know, people who have never been in a room with him might not know? Such like a serious college essay question. Yeah. I was just going to ask you how old you were when you started. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like those are, you're asking me like the beginning of the college okay. essay questions. Like how name, old were you when age. you started working at the White House? I was 24. How old were you when you started 25, working at the White House? So okay. I'm your elder. <laughs> All right. So uh, I think the most surprising thing about being Barack Obama when he's off the record, the first time he spoke to me was actually on a treadmill. Uh, in a gym in Colorado, we were traveling together. I was traveling in service of the president, I should say. Uh, <laughs> we were traveling together, it was a weekend. Uh, no, so no, um, it was 
an early morning, I kind of, it's a false sense of control over your life if you can get a workout in in the morning when you're going to three different cities and three different states in two days. And so the first time President Obama spoke to me was actually I just run this workout. And Lit and I are both runners, uh, but I just finished this workout. I was so sweaty. And um, the Secret Service agent gets on next to me. And I thought, you know, whatever, Secret Service agent. He goes, I thought you'd be faster than that. I was like, excuse me? <laughs> so I turn, and I'm about to say something that I'm sure would have been very clever, except I turn, and it's actually President Obama. And he's just like chewing his gum, and he has that sparkle in his eye, just like, gotcha. <laughs> and he's got like his like black Kangol hat on, like he's totally, you know, incognito, um, except it's the president. And so I just stand there, and then I just am so embarrassed because I, I have sweat like through my clothes. And he also, to I mean, he's a competitive guy, and he waited until I had finished running. So I'm like, oh, there's nothing to compare this to, <laughs> sir. Uh, so I did not say anything clever. I just sort of had my jaw on the ground and then sprinted from the room. And then the worst part is I get into the elevator and I realized I had failed on every level because I hadn't even wiped down my machine. I was so mortified. <laughs> and so then I realized he would never trust his newest stenographer because she doesn't even know like basic gym etiquette. <laughs> but yeah, as far as like being around him off the cut, like I think he's just, he's, people always ask, well, what's he like in real life? And I think the nice thing and what's so easy about President Obama is that he, he is as he appears to be. Um, what you see is what you get with him on camera, off camera. I think in person, he's a little warmer, a little funnier, and definitely more competitive. <laughs> well, I, it's funny. I think that the that notion that like what you see from someone in public is very similar to what you see from them in private, I found that certainly true for President Obama, but also for other people I've written speeches for. And it m is one of the things, when I think about our current moment, that makes me, you know, people ask, like, what do you, what would you have learned about President Trump, or what do you think about him? And it's like, probably what you see is also what you get, mm -hmm. uh, for better or more likely for worse. And um, and I think that that is, uh, it's one of the, the things that I learned from that experience, which is that there's, less kind of behind the scenes string pulling than I would have expected from watching the West Wing, certainly from watching House of Cards. Uh, I, I committed way fewer sex murders than <laughs> most of the characters on that show. Um, but, uh, no, I think that is, uh, yeah, to me that was one of the things that was like. Yeah, how would you break down, because that's another great question is like, what do these administrations break down to, and I, so I spent two months uh, in Trump's campaign, and so I, I did, I got kind of cornered by him on Air Force One when he was trying to give Melania a tour of the plane, and he somehow got lost on the plane, which I don't really know how you do. It's a straightforward, pl it's a 747, but it, it's straightforward, it's the same layout, it seems basic enough. Um, but he got lost, and he just sort of cornered me, and he was like, hello. Hi, sir. Hello. It was like Teletubbies on rerun. Uh, <laughs> and because of that, it just sort of seemed like, but when, I, but when I told people that, they were like, oh my gosh, you must have been so scared. I was like, I mean, didn't we all know that's what was going to happen with this guy? Like, Melania was right behind him, and I looked at her, and she just looked at the ground. I was like, yeah, it's kind of what I expected from both of you. This is what we have going on. Right. But as far as TV shows go, I like to say that the Trump administration is 50% House of Cards and then 50% Game of Thrones. Mm. 
And then for the Obama administration, I was thinking like 50, no, like 70% West Wing and then like 30% Veep. But what do you think? It, it's funny, it's interesting. I mean, the last, the last time we saw each other, I think was a little over a year ago when uh, when my book had just come out, and I guess you were probably done with yours, but and kind of entering the the pre-publication part of it, and uh, and now I'm realizing that we've been answering very similar questions for like the last year. Yeah. Um, but when was the last Taylor Swift concert you attended? <laughs> well, it's funny you should ask. Uh, well, the last Taylor Swift concert, and I, actually I got to talk about this recently because Taylor Swift decided to get political, finally. Finally. Uh, was She's great. So in my book, Thank I talk Taylor. about a, a speech that I was very proud of. I, I um, wrote uh, a speech that President Obama delivered at the NAACP's uh, annual convention on criminal justice reform, and this was in Philly. And it was the first time that we had kind of tied all of these different threads of criminal justice reform together in one coherent whole. And it was obviously a topic that mattered a lot to the president personally. So it was one of the ones where he kind of took out the legal pad and wrote whole paragraphs. And that was always good as a speechwriter because the part that President Obama would write would always be the part that then, you know, like a family member would be like, did you write that? And I like, can attest yeah. to that. There were a lot of times I'd be like, lit, that was amazing. And this one line would be like, yeah, the president wrote that line. Yeah, that happened a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Usually what I would say to, to a friend or family members, I'd just be like, well, I, you know, I worked on the speech. Just to, to kind of, <laughs> you, you learn to dodge questions. But I, um, but so I, I, you know, write in the book about how proud I was of that, how it really came together in a way you always hope will happen. What I left out in the book was that uh, four of us, uh, the two of us and two other um, Obama staffers, were desperate to get back to D.C. because Taylor Swift was uh, at National Stadium that night, and we all had tickets. Uh, and so I think there was a fundraiser after. And the day kept after, going back. Yeah, yeah, and it was just like, come on, can we please hurry up? Like, I know the president has president things to do, but like, we have Taylor Swift tickets. So <laughs> we'd really like to get on Air Force One and like take off and land. And then finally, I, we landed and then uh, just rushed, like, um, like we were trying to catch a flight, but yeah. even more so. Uh, and and we all got in uh, in my you know, I feel like I, I was actually just so Jackie my wife uh, and I are here and we drove up from DC and we're like why is the car in such bad shape and now I'm thinking about this and I'm like <laughs> well we sort of tore through DC uh, trying to get from Andrews Air Force Base to this Taylor Swift concert and we made it and um, the martyr that lit is because I was like salivating with my friend and coworker in the back seat he was like just go. Leave me. <laughs> I'll find parking. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, thank you, David Lynn. <laughs> I, I was I was like the heroic Victorian yeah, era right, explorer right, right. of that Taylor Swift concert. Um, but uh, where where did we start with this? I interrupted. I asked you about the breakdown between television, the reality of Veep and uh, the West Wing. Oh yeah. So I would I always say you were very charitable. Seventy percent West Wing, thirty percent Veep. I usually say eighty percent Veep and twenty percent West Wing. Um, and the reason for that is not because I did, I mean, I, I had a really amazing experience in the White House, and I'm really proud of the work that I did and my colleagues did. But I would say most of the time what Veep captured perfectly was this sense that everything is about to fall apart because of something that was not the important thing. It's always something completely unrelated to that. You know, I mean, I remember 
the first trip I went on, I was trying to get a speech to the president, but then I didn't, no one had told me that I needed to wear a pin in order to get into the space, but they let me in, but then they wouldn't let me out. <laughs> so I was stuck at outside a factory, uh, you know, basically where like secret service agents would shoot me if I went in either direction. Uh, and it wasn't, you know, this was not what I thought ri writing speeches was supposed to, it was not supposed to hinge on whether or not you knew you were supposed to wear the pin. Um, and I think that's what Veep captures perfectly. The characters are obviously a little, little bit more cynical, but then 20% of the time, I felt like there were these moments where you really, you get to be part of something completely magical, or you have this moment where you feel like America is a better place in the evening than it was in the morning, and I got to have some tiny role in that. And that was, then you can kind of hear the theme song start yeah. to go. What was your role when you ended up uh, being caught in your pajamas on Air Force One? <laughs> when I ended up being caught in my pajamas? Because I got a text, I was in DC, and they were like, uh, Lit is in his pajamas in a closet and <laughs> on Air Force One. Um, so I feel like the fact that you asked what was your role when you got caught in your, it makes yeah. it sound like that was a formal <laughs> role at the White House. It was like, I am the pajama man. Uh, I don't know if you know of that, that White House job. Um, I, uh, this was, I had never, and, and I think was a, a perfect illustration of sort of the, like a Veep type moment where it's the things you don't expect. So I had, I was a domestic policy speechwriter. We had kind of a, a fine line between the domestic policy team and the foreign policy team. And the only exception for me was they, um, they were doing a 36-hour trip to Germany to do a G7 summit. And basically, it was a, a huge amount of jet lag for all involved. So no one who regularly went on foreign trips wanted to go. And so I got to do it, um, which is how I got to do a lot of things at the White House. It was kind of like, what does no one else want to do? I'll take it. <laughs> and I, so I went. What I didn't know was that you had to bring clothing to sleep in on the plane. This should have been obvious, but it did not occur to me. And so by the time the um, we were about to be ready for takeoff, uh, when Luke, our, our trip director, uh, emailed and said, don't forget to bring sleepwear. And at that point, I had two options because I did not have time to shop for anything. I could either wear like an oversized t-shirt and boxer shorts, or I could wear my one pair of pajamas, which was a uh, pair of pajamas I'd purchased from the internet in freshman year of college, uh, covered in pictures of the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> and so I went with the Incredible Hulk. So I, I got on the plane, we all took off, uh, I changed into my Hulk pajamas like you do. And then, um, and I didn't get a lot of sleep. One thing that I, I found, Air Force One is awesome. Um, I think you'll agree, good plane, as planes go. Uh, however, Terrible place to sleep. Terrible uh, place also as far as uh, you share one bathroom. There, I think there's 87 seats, is that correct? Uh, and there's over 300 seats on a normal, on um, a commercial 747, and there's less than 100, fewer than 100 on Air Force One because you also have a conference room, you have an office, you have a senior staff cabin, um, Secret Service take up two cabins. And so uh, you end up sharing a bathroom with, if you're staff like us, not senior staff, uh, it's us and then the guest cabin. So it's like 20-ish people, which isn't a big deal, except that you are trying to change into um, over overnight Hulk pajamas and then back into your professional wear. And then there, there tends to be a line. So like one yes. time um, there was like a hair straightener left uh, in the bathroom 
from some senator who will remain nameless, uh, and then a staffer, there was some turbulence, the straightener was left in, so then the staffer ended up getting burned because <laughs> it had fallen on him. Really? Which is great, yeah. Um, but because of that, my point being is that it is one of the big stressors, at least for me, and I think especially for female traveling, is that like you need to have like two minutes in a bathroom just to like get changed, maybe look at yourself in the mirror, see if like you have mascara down to your chin. Uh, and it and you don't always get those two minutes because the line forms um, two hours before we land because everyone wants those two minutes in the bathroom and you're sharing it with so many people. Uh, yeah, now, okay, later I'm gonna ask you about the hair straightener and who it was, I wanna yeah. know. Um, I will say, reading reading your book, I feel like it was literally every 10 pages, I was like, wait, that happened? <laughs> 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 we, we were talking about this earlier, but I did feel like I felt like when I was in high school and I never knew any of the good gossip, uh, and I just felt like that on, on a much more professional level. What was the other thing you said I was like? I don't know. I was like your sassy inner voice. Oh, that's true. We didn't, we didn't uh, yeah. you know, I feel like there was um, certainly some things that you said in a, in a way that I felt like I, I, I feel like I was writing a speechwriter book. I said, I'm like, you're Luther, <laughs> your anger management. <laughs> that's true. You, you, uh, well, uh, but back to the Hulk pajamas for a second. Yes, go. Because, you know, important Hulk history-making stuff. So this, is what, this is the problem of having two friends who haven't seen each other in a year catch up yes. on stage. Uh, at least we're not talking about goldfish. Um, so I, uh, so I, we had this long line, um, and I realized, so And I you didn't know about the long line. I didn't know about the long line. I didn't know about the sleepwear. No one told me anything. And so I, uh, the other thing that was important to know is I didn't have to write any of the speeches that were about foreign policy or about where we were going to take the world together as a whatever. Um, my job was to write the sort of five minutes of opening remarks when President Obama got to Germany and he was going to say, you know, uh, pretzels and lederhosen and, and that was it. <laughs> and so, th but the th that was the first speech of the day. So I realized we're about to land. If he has edits to the speech, he's going to call me up to the conference room and he's going to be sitting around the table and I'm going to walk in there in my Hulk pajamas <laughs> to say, you know, Mr. President, how can I serve you and the American people? Which actually, I feel like Hulk pajamas are sort of appropriate given that if you're trying to help as many people as possible. I guess so, but you want a little more restraint, I, I think, don't know, it's in a vote politics. of confidence, I think. <laughs> uh, and the other thing is also, because uh, I remember there was one time we filmed something, and um, you, you remember Nate Emery, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the AV guys, he was wearing an overcoat because he forgot his suit jacket, and President Obama noticed it, and like he was fine, and he knew Nate was good at his job, but he also didn't let him forget it for like three or four months. It was just like a fun, yeah. you know. And so Hulk pajamas could have lasted, I mean, right now, you know, yeah. it could be like a plane flying over with a banner. Um, so I panicked a little bit. And also I was thinking like if I have to walk out onto the tarmac and there's all these, you know, German delegates waiting to greet me, this could go badly. So I had a brilliant idea. Um, I realized no one was using the coat closet. So if I ducked into the coat closet where my suit and my trousers already were, I could change quickly. No one would ever be the wiser. As someone who understands the size of this coat closet, this makes no sense whatsoever. I'm not a very large person. This is person. like an insane. This is a great idea. Like, no, this is a horrible <laughs> idea. Um, well, like it's a very public space. The huge flat screen TV is right next to it. So everyone's staring in that direction regardless because we're watching <laughs> Terminator 2. 
So, so there's I no way you're going to go undetected. So but I, I wasn't on that trip. I'm going to try to split the difference and say it was a great idea for the first 35 seconds. <laughs> and then uh, uh, Luke, our, our trip director, needed to get his coat, which is <laughs> a part of the plan that I had not thought through, <laughs> that other people existed. And so Luke opened the door, and of course everyone was looking directly that way, and I was standing in my underwear with a pair of balled-up Hulk pajamas at my feet. Uh, so I would say at that point it became a bad idea. Uh, I'm willing Luke to give was you just that. Like, Whoa, <laughs> well, and, it dude. and it would be one thing if it was just one person, but it was oh. kind of er it was all of my colleagues at once, and it was there it was there's like 15 staffers in that room. Yeah, and once some you know it's a ripple effect. So once Luke is this like um, formidable creature who we all love, uh, and so for Luke to be like whoa, dude, like everyone is, I mean, he's the trip coordinator, right. so it's just like, oh God, what's going right. on over there? The focus needs to be Snakes on Snakes on this. a plane, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, and it was also at the point where, where, you know, it was 2015, I think, when this happened, so I had started to think, you know, I've given years of my life to my country, like, what is my legacy going to be? <laughs> and, and I think there was kind of, like, looking at the faces of my colleagues looking at me, I think I had a sense of like, oh, that's going to be my legacy. Um, to the point where, uh, so apparently other, uh, other senior staff members, uh, I heard this later, I was not invited back on a foreign trip, uh, but other senior staffers on other foreign trips, I heard would uh, periodically see if they could recreate this scene just to see if they could do it. Um, and also, I don't mean to pick on, on Jackie, who's behind me, but she works on, uh, on, on Capitol Hill now for a congressman, and she had a meeting with someone and said, oh, you know, they had a White House connection. She said, do you know my husband? And uh, he said, oh, yeah, isn't that the one with, uh, who is trying to change his clothes in the coat closet? Um, so I feel like yeah. my legacy really is secure. It is 100% secure because um, as someone who was invited back to more international trips because I knew about that coat closet, people would often say, you want to pull a lit? You're going to try to pull a lit real fast. <laughs> so there's your legacy, yes. my friend. So I think that's what every <laughs> White House speechwriter hopes for, yeah. is to be associated with, with no, that. No, and I will say, you said something about um, President Obama is so good and so sharp, and he, he knows, he's very appreciative of his staff and how hard everyone worked, and um, I got to go on his vacations with him as just this, like, full-time stalker. And so one time uh, in Hawaii, he kind of, he would go snorkeling at Hanama Bay with his family and friends, and then he would always allow the staff, there were like 10 of us or 15 of us to go, and he would come over and say, hi, thank you, like I know you're not with your families because of me, like thank you for being here. Um, and so he was definitely appreciative of his staff and the sacrifices that they made. At the same time, he loves to give his staff guff. So I remember just like you knowing if he sees me in my Hulk pajamas, he will not let it go, and just the way he saw Nate in his like overcoat. Uh, same as I remember we were in Burma the second time and your boss Cody Keenan was like working on a speech but in a bar in the hotel and we had just done like 15 hours on the road like in Burma and so we go th we have to walk through the bar to get to the next site and POTUS just sees Cody and Cody's like you know he's kind of let himself go it's like day three of scruff like hasn't shaved and he's like Oh, good. Uh, Hemingway over there is just having a fun vacation while the rest of us are working. Cool. 
Good, well, good luck with that, Cody. Looks good, man. And it was just like this great, like he knows that Cody has his laptop out and he's like working on the speech, but at the same time, he's not gonna let it go that it's like, oh, you're letting your like beard grow out? Cool, I just had like seven different meetings and it's 9 a.m. Yeah, my sense, I, I am not a, a basketball player at all, but my sense was always that uh, when he was playing basketball, um, uh, President Obama would have been a really good trash talker. Like, like not loud, but just say something that makes you really think and like before you know it, he's got the ball. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, here, uh, I wanted to ask you this. Uh, I was I was interested. So we talked a little bit about what a speechwriter does, um, and we talked a little bit about what a stenographer does. I thought that of there was clearly a few different ways into it because we had a number of stenographers. But I feel like you became sort of a member of the the traveling staff in a way that others didn't. Was there a moment when you felt like Okay, I'm kind of part of this, uh, this group. Or did my question not make sense? Give no, me no, 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 no. Um, there was never a moment. I think s stenographers, I would say, are pretty um, self-selecting. And I actually got my job on Craigslist. I had been a high school English teacher before, and I'm pretty social. Uh, stenographers tend to be more uh, introverted. So one person who worked at this um, contracting company through which I got hired, was offered my job before I had applied. And so I met her at a, at a Christmas party. And I was like, why didn't you take this job? Like, it's so fun. I go on Air Force One. What were you thinking? And she's like, I work at State Department. And I love my job because I sit in the basement of the State Department and no one talks to me all day. <laughs> I was like, oh, OK. So it's a different, it's a different set of values. So um, I think because of that and because of my background and just who I am, I I wanted to make friends on the road. Otherwise, the road is actually pretty difficult. Um, you're away from your family, you're away from your friends, you're jet lagged, and there's um, a ton of stress. And even my job, which is relatively straightforward, doesn't require the sort of brain power that being a speechwriter does. Even so, it's like if anything is the least bit amiss, if I can't plug in to the television network that told me I could plug in, and President Obama is walking down and I have like 15 seconds before I start missing the chance to record history that everyone is, is expecting me to record, I'm in trouble. That's my job. Uh, and so because of that, you're always the adrenaline, even when things are like relatively calm, it's always at least at a loud hum of like, oh my God, if I don't do this right, I'm ruining President Obama's legacy. Because I think for better or for worse, we all kind of carried around this responsibility that we are contributing to something much bigger than ourselves. And so we want to do right by him and we want to do right by the bigger team. Um, but no, I, I don't think there was ever a moment. I think I just slowly but slyly elbowed my way in <laughs> to making friends because stenographers, there's one of us on every trip. I didn't have a team. Like the speechwriters are a cool team and they do things together and I didn't have that. And as someone who grew up playing sports, I was like, oh, I just want a team so badly. And my stenographer friends just want to go home and talk to the walls. So because of that, um, I did end up forging some really important friendships on the plane, especially I think I was just on the plane a lot. Uh, I went to over 45 countries with President Obama. So because of that, I was just like, you know, if you forget batteries, you got to find someone who has batteries for your microphone. Uh, and so that's how I became friends with my friend Hope, the videographer who always had batteries, that sort <laughs> of thing. But no, there was no one moment, um, except I guess I don't know, you find yourself in these crazy situations where I got to go to Cuba on this historic trip where we were breaking with history and 
all of a sudden I looked up and we were at this party and it was like, what am I doing here? And then I looked over and I was like, but I'm friends with those three guys who are like dancing to, who's the guy that was at the, you know, I mean, who's the guy that has, that was a really vague question, but yeah, <laughs> no, the guy, uh, he like is, he, it's like, he sings those songs. It's like country, but not country. Uh, wait, now I want to get something Bill. His last name. Jimmy Buffett, thank you. Yeah. Wow. Thanks. Well done, thank you, sir. Yeah. So Jimmy Buffett was playing yeah, there. I we were I like, "What is I happening?" I did not realize that that Google was here. This yeah. is great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for being my Shazam with yeah. Bill. Uh, but yeah, Jimmy Buffett was playing in Cuba, and it's like, I don't know how I have friends here, but I'm so glad I do because someone needs to be a witness to this insanity. Yeah. I was gonna guess Cruella Deville, so <laughs> I'm glad that this. We work those out. Um, so you were talking about the speech writing team being like a very close-knit yeah. team. But one of my favorite parts of your book was when you quoted uh, another w another person on the speech writing team who described our team as a shark tank full of dicks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was really funny. And maybe, I w but it made me think for, it was one of those moments where I thought and I w about do you think that my experience at the White House was fundamentally different because I am a man? I was a man and not a woman. Obviously, the answer I assume is yes. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> and then the rest of my question is discuss. <laughs> <laughs> that is like a like a eleventh uh, grade. Yes, we've now moved test. from college yeah. application yeah. to yeah. like yeah. like progressive. Um, no, so I think final. on every level, when you were talking about your first time on the plane, it was like, oh my god, my first time on the plane, just packing, was such a nightmare because for guys, it, and I talked about this with my guy friends, it was like they packed if it was a two day trip, they packed one suit, and if it was a week long trip, they packed two, maybe three suits, and then some button down, whatever, it's fine. If you're a woman, like you have like from your feet. I did not wear these um, on up. It's just like this <sighs> like ever cycling chance at disaster. Um, and so some of my book just kind of recounts those moments where it's like, I was really trying to do the right thing. I was trying to wear the right thing. I was trying to fit in. And it's just inevitable that you feel like an idiot when you're trying to be a professional woman. But then the, the guidance says disaster casual. And it's like, all right, I guess I'll get green pants from the gap. That seems fine. And then Everyone's like, <laughs> why are you wearing green pants from the Gap, you idiot? Uh, so, <laughs> so no, it's just from what you wear and like the length of your skirt. I mean, unfortunately, that's just how things are. Jumpsuits weren't in yet, or else I think I would just wear a jumpsuit every day. Um, but things were tricky, and part of that book, part of the big reason why I wrote the book was because, regardless of whether I had been at the White House or if I was still teaching high school English, is I wanted to think about young women navigating their first and second jobs. And I fell in love with the wrong guy at work because that happens too. And that sort of like whole enchilada disaster that is your 20s and you just have to like gobble it up and enjoy it and savor it and hate it for all that it is. Uh, but yeah, I think as far as being a woman in the White House, it was hard. I wrote about this woman who I call the Rattler, um, who was an older senior staffer who I admired from afar. And then when I got my job at the White House, it turned out she was actually, um, she went out of her way to not make me feel welcome and not feel a part of the team. And unfortunately, when I was telling my friends about this who worked um, in other places, 
not in DC, they were like, oh yeah, I've had a rattler. And since the book has come out, everyone's like, oh, I've had a rattler. And so part of why I wrote about her wasn't just to commiserate about these women who are disappointing, but also uh, it's so important to find the women out there and the mentors, regardless of gender, uh, who are willing to lift you up and kind of advocate for you and encourage you. And if you can kind of, even if that initial disappointment is kind of staggering, then to sort of uh, redirect it to the positive and to go towards the good, as our friend Hope would say. Um, that's uh, One of the things that I thought was interesting about the speechwriting team, and I wrote about this a little bit, uh, you know, about when I joined the speechwriting team, we were entirely white and male. Basi the president's team was basically entirely white and male, which obviously I did not do anything to help fix. Um, and I, I do think it's always a strange thing as a as a white guy. You're like, well, I think there should be more diversity, but just wait one more. And like, once I'm in, then diversity is great. Uh, and I'm still trying to figure that one out. But it was at the the speechwriting team, and I think the White House in general became more diverse, um, and just had a better. Uh, it became a team that represented a lot more of America by the end of the administration than the beginning. I think. And actually, the the speechwriter you quote in in the book is saying, you know, the speechwriting team was a shark tank of dicks. Um, but one of the things that I remember is we always used to, when we wrote speeches about women's issues, we would have President Obama sort of say, you know, as a husband, as a father of two daughters, and she was the one to be like, actually, that seems kind of condescending mm -hmm. and patronizing, and like you should care about and these ownership. things. Because and no one, and we were all, and maybe maybe stupidly, but we were all shocked by that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in the same what way. What do you mean this woman can stand on her own two feet? Right, in the same way that, like, I would say before I was in a serious relationship, I had no idea that, w like, uh, curling iron could hurt people. Uh, oh I didn't boy. plug it in, yeah. but I wouldn't have known. Yeah. Um, and, but, uh, so I think there, but there was, and we changed it. Um, and I think there was, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't know if you would agree or disagree with this. I think it was, uh, you could see the changes from, let's say, 2012 to 2016, yeah. even if they weren't all there or some of them never should have been needed to be made in the first place. And it was it was interesting to see an organization do that while the stakes were so high. And to be fair to our colleague Layla, the only reason why she said I work in a shark tank of dicks is because she was encouraging me to write more because at the time I couldn't even say aloud to a small group of women who I loved and trusted that I wanted to write. And she was like, I work in a shark tank of dicks all day. Because I think she was the only female in the office at the time. Um, more or less. Okay. That's a weird thing to say. <laughs> no, so, so um, uh, Sarah Hurwitz, who wrote for yeah. the First Lady. Okay, uh, so she was the only presidential so speaker. Right, in our meetings in yeah. the Shark Tank, there yeah. was at least two women. And but so she was saying that writer. in the context of encouraging me to write, and she said, if you were a guy, you would say you were writing the next great American novel. And so women need to be more empowered and be more confident about, if you're a writer, if you write, you're a writer, is what she said. And so I think the context <laughs> is important there. She wasn't just like going off, uh, <laughs> but even if she did. No, I th I, well, and I think there was a, a level of, um, what's the word, uh, competitiveness that I think, you know, it, it is also different if, I would assume, if you're the only woman in the room, it doesn't yeah. just feel like gender neutral competitiveness, which yeah. where, where if you're in a room of all man men and you're a man, it just, it doesn't feel gendered, but I would yeah. imagine for her it probably did a little bit more. And then in stark contrast to 2012 or 2016, uh, I had to cover a vice president meeting in 2017 for Vice President Pence. And so I went to the second floor of the Eisenhower building and I couldn't find the room. 
And so I ended up doing like one big lap, which doesn't normally happen because you know where you're going typically. Uh, but I couldn't find this Pence guy. And so instead I was walking around this whole floor and it was so creepy. It was like out of a science fiction movie because the only people I saw were white men over the age of 50, which I'm sure his mother would have loved. But it was like very strange to me as far as just like, oh, this is such a crazy contrast to I'm used to seeing people of all different backgrounds and all different ethnicities and genders walking around and all of a sudden it is like automatons and it's just like a bunch of different pences. It was kind of like the Matrix, but scarier. We should never end on a dark yeah. moment like that. What's your favorite? <laughs> what's what's the, like a great lesson? Because I think we're supposed to wrap. Is that why you keep looking at us? Yeah. Uh, yeah. What, what, what <laughs> actually, why don't we do? Let's just do questions, right? We can we can leave with like uh, a room full of Mike Pence's. And do you have any laugh. nice uplifting things to say about Barack just Obama? No, I like mean things that you learned just really quickly, and then we'll take questions. Uh, yeah. I, I mean don't like last le ending. Okay, I'll Pence. I'll try to be really quick then. Um, no, I would say the thing that I, I wanted to write this book in part because I wanted, I felt like most DC memoirs are either, they have this sort of tension between you either end up being very smart and cynical or you end up being very idealistic and naive. And I kind of wanted to write about the experience of becoming kind of disillusioned, um, but also still idealistic at the same time. And funny. And funny, funny, ideally. Um, but I and so I think that was the uh, so to me I think what I found was on one hand even a well-run White House was made of people who made plenty of mistakes and did their best and sometimes that wasn't enough Hulk but on pajamas. the other hand and sometimes ended up in their Hulk pajamas uh, in Air Force One occasionally um, but I I think that the to me that was I found that uplifting because, you know, when I've talked to, to young people since the book came out or, uh, you know, young at heart people since the book came out, there's a sense that if there's no perfect people out there who are going to fix things, then we can do it or we should do it because we can't wait for someone else. And I thought that was actually a really exciting thing to learn. When I was um, a, s a senior in college and kind of fell in love with Barack Obama, he used to say, you know, I won't, I'm not a perfect man and I will not be a perfect president. And I used to think that's exactly what a perfect man would say. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but I think that that's true, that he was not perfect. He was great, and I admire him a lot, but he wasn't a perfect person. And I think that gives should give some hope to the rest of us who are also imperfect that we can do something meaningful as well. Yeah. Well said. Um, so now, now can we take questions? Take questions. Does anyone have any questions? Okay, some quick ground rules for the Q&A. Um, there's one of me, there's a lot of you. So just raise your hand um, and be patient and I'll run around with the mic and we're gonna start here in the back. Thank you, thank you all for coming to Harrisburg. Quick Thanks question, uh, speech writing. I don't know if it's a collaborative approach or just one speech writer per engagement, but who, the elephant in the room, the Affordable Care Act, who or how did you come with the line, if you want to keep your health plan, you won't lose it if you can keep it that line. How, how did that come to be? So uh, that's a good question. Um, so you asked about sort of collaborative versus individual speech writing. And most of the speeches that we wrote in the Obama White House, every different, every presidency does this differently. We would generally have one person hold the pen and then, uh, and that just meant you were responsible for the speech and you would sort of send it up the chain um, in the George W. Bush White House, they would have pairs of people write things together, which is more common in like a TV writer's room. 
Um, and sometimes for when we were writing joke speeches, those would actually be very collaborative. We'd have 12 or 15 people, and the way I would always put it is, you know, it was my fault if things went badly, but I was not the only person by any means writing jokes. Um, you specifically asked about the line, if you like your plan, you can keep your plan. And one of the things I wrote about in, in my book was about the ex sort of long-running Cold War between the White House speechwriters and the White House fact-checkers. Um, this was in the, the golden age of where we where we had facts and uh, and uh, which then meant that you had people who would check them and so uh, we had about eight people and they were responsible for and and to the point where once President Obama just read the Gettysburg address word for word and they sent back a fact check that was like it had five or six flags in it um, or you'd say, you know, America's the greatest country on earth, and you'd get a flag back, and it would say, well, actually, uh, you know, the Nordic countries on several <laughs> measures are outperforming us. Um, and you have to explain, like, now he's the president of the United States. We're going to say America's number one. Thank you. Uh, but also, they kept us from being fired many, many times. So, uh, you know, it, it absolutely, um, we were happy to have them there. I, I mentioned this in the book, and I was not there during the debate over the Affordable Care Act, but... Uh, when it was, sorry, the debate over the Affordable Care Act is never ending. When the bill was being uh, debated originally and was, was passed, I wasn't there. I was surprised, because that was the kind of thing where ordinarily what, what we would have said was something along the lines of, if you like your plan and your plan is any good at all, is like insurance by any definition, you will be able to keep it, which was true. Um, a lot of people had plans that were, by, by uh, human definition, not really health insurance, but technically health insurance, and most of the people who couldn't keep their plans, it was because what they had was not good and a lot of people didn't realize it. Um, that obviously does not sound very, very uh, punchy, the way I just said it, and so for some reason that was one of the rare times I think the fact-checking uh, process didn't sort of win out. Um, but you would hear a lot of those caveats in other speeches because of the fact checkers. And I will try to answer other questions in less time. Next question. Yes, right here. I was thinking it was sort of sad we had to applaud for facts. <laughs> <laughs> so this question is for Beck. So in your book, you have this sort of unfortunate ongoing relationship with someone who sounds like it wasn't very positive for you. And you're not admitting this to your friends because you're embarrassed about it. And then you write this book that tells the entire world this happened. So I'm wondering, how was it that, how was that for you to do that? And how did you make that shift to going from, no, this is too hard to talk about, to, oh, I'll just tell the whole world? Oh, uh, well, I guess because, so I had this uh, ongoing relationship that wasn't a relationship, but I thought it was a relationship because I was 27 and madly in love uh, with this senior staffer guy who uh, chose someone else. And... I wrote about it because when I initially thought about writing a book, it was going to be a collection of essays about senior staffers who I thought were really cool, who I admired. And then I ended up getting to send uh, some writing to David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, uh, which is absurd. But it's the funny thing is I didn't know anyone in publishing except David Remnick because he had flown on Air Force One a few times. So I didn't know anyone except the top. So he was really nice. I didn't know. I had luckily talked to David Litt about how do you write a book. And he said, you need a literary agent. And I didn't know any agents. And so I wrote to David Remnick. I was like, hey, you know any agents? And he was like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> do you know who I am? And so, 
he was really generous and said, send me your writing, and if I like it, I'll tell you about some agents. And so he was the one, he read some of these essays, and he was like, where are you? Like, you're the Craigslister who ended up on Air Force One. Your story needs to be in here. And so as soon as the, the lens sort of shifted from out, more in, uh, it seemed impossible to not write about that relationship because it was so a part of my experience there. And also I was like, well, if I'm gonna write honestly, if this is gonna be a memoir, like how if I don't write about that, then it's all a lie. So um, I did have a year to sort of like slowly tell people, oh, remember that time I said it was over and it wasn't really over? <laughs> and the other time, and the other time. Um, so I had, I had some time to go through it. That being said, my dad still hasn't read the book. He's like, thanks, no thanks. <laughs> Another question in the second row. So if I understand right, um, this um, Put them on speaker. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, David, you, l you left before the end of the uh, Obama um, years, and you left after. Could you just explain why um, you chose to leave when you, you two did? I chose to stay till the end because I'm not a quitter. Uh, I stayed till the end because I I have had um, FOMO since the day I was born, and so I loved. I wasn't a political animal, and then Barack Obama kind of made me one, and so I just couldn't imagine spending time doing anything else except seeing what he would do. Um, and then when when Trump won, that was like this crazy shakeup because I had been anticipating staying, and maybe and you know like we had friends coming back who had left for the Hillary campaign, so I was like, oh. This person's gonna come back. This person's gonna come back, um, and so I thought that'd be fun. And then if if there was one very personal silver lining to Trump winning, it was that I was shaken to my core in a way that I was like, "All right, well, if Trump can win, I can probably write better than I think I can, and I should just do this right now." <laughs> so that that was really like the fire that got me being like, "I have to start showing my writing to people besides my mom," um, and so I I stayed just because I I still had rent to pay. Um, and my friends encouraged me to because I was one of the few people who could stay. Most of the people were political appointees and had to leave when Obama left. Um, so I was able to stay, but I quickly learned that I wasn't going to be able to change anything from a stenographer standpoint, even though some of those rough drafts of the transcripts were pretty funny because I would just write whatever I wanted, and then I'd have to delete it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I basically I had this really great uh, final day where my literary agent called and I was in the middle of typing up a Sean Spicer press briefing full of lies, just <laughs> going through them. And she was like, can you talk outside? And I said, no, I'm in the middle of typing up all these lies. And she was like, take the call. So I went outside and she was like, you have a two book deal, you're done, you've typed your last transcript for Trump. And so I got to literally drop the mic and walk out. Yeah. <laughs> I just think it's like, I feel like there are other I feel like there's other conversations where someone's like, you know, President Trump got elected, and I was like, I bet I can write, and I started sharing my writing with the world, and that's when I began posting racist comments on my nephew's Facebook page. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm glad that this is like the one good version of that. <laughs> but uh, no, so for me, I left about a year uh, before. Um, I knew that I wanted to do something, you know, I wanted, originally I actually wanted to do a one-man show about my, uh, about my time at the White House, and I had had all of these stories, I think actually, sort of like what you were talking about with stenographers, 
people either become speechwriters because they never want to talk in front of people, but they want to be able to express their ideas, or it becomes kind of something you do because you're trading authorship for audience. So, you know, obviously anything I would write for President Obama had way more people that would pay attention to it, but it wasn't mine. And I had done stand-up comedy when I was in high school. I had always kind of wanted to do things in public. So that was one, I'd always had that in the back of my mind. At the same time, I also hit a point at the White House. I, I think the word burnout gets thrown around so often it's almost a cliche. But it is kind of that every day you're there, even, even if you believe in what you're doing, and maybe especially if you believe in what you're doing, it takes a little bit out of you. It's just, and, and the things that are special and amazing start to feel a little less special and amazing. And so the day that the, um, the Supreme Court ruled 5-4, uh, you know, in uh, Obergefell v. Hodges and, uh, and, and um, gay marriage was legal nationwide, and I remember our interns were celebrating, and I turned to my intern and was like, just so you know, it's not always like this. And I was like, I think I need to leave. Um, and, I, and not in the sense that I wasn't good at my job, I think I was still pretty good at my job, or in the sense that I didn't still love my job, but I think I didn't like it as much as I did when I started. And also, I didn't want to stay to the point where, uh, there's a weird thing that happens where people who work in the White House um, start to feel like they're indispensable to the president or the country. And that is not true for almost anybody. Uh, it's w with a few exceptions, it is true, but there are exceptions. And I didn't want to stay past the point, sort of past my expiration date, on this theory that no one else could be could possibly, you know, do as good a job as I was doing, because that's just not true. And so, um, and you know, I know the person who replaced me. I had known him before he got the job, and, and he was great. And he showed up and was every bit as excited and appreciative about how special and unique this experience was that I had been at the beginning. So to me, I felt like the speechwriting team was in a really good place where I didn't feel bad about leaving, and I felt like I wanted to see what I sounded like. And also, um, you know, it was that, uh, that moment, not so much burnout, but that feeling of kind of the erosion has taken a point where it's just, it feels like it's time. It was a little, it was like a migratory bird in the end. It was like, I don't quite know why I'm doing what I'm doing, but like, I'm headed this direction. Um, and so that's, uh, you know, so no, no mic dropping, but, um, but I guess that's why I left when I did. Which I think, th just to speak to that burnout, I remember when I first started in 2012, uh, one of my first things I had to do was like Christmas in Washington, and it's just this fun concert, and it's like, and I was so excited because the Backstreet Boys were having a revival, and I was like, oh my God, I looked up Brian Luttrell, he still looks amazing, and I was so excited, and everyone else in the van was like, devastated that they had to go to this thing on a Sunday night, and I remember thinking, if I ever end up in this van going to Christmas in Washington, and I'm mad about it, I need to leave. And I remember the last year I was like, I should probably leave, but luckily <laughs> everyone was right. leaving. <laughs> um, so one of my favorite uh, White House correspondence dinner thingies was Luther, the anger translator. Did you have any part in that? And where did that come from? Because that did was hilarious. He? I loved it. Um, well, so that, so for people who aren't familiar with it, uh, Luther, the anger translator, was a uh, was a character that Keegan Michael Key, who was one half of Key and Peele, the sketch comedy duo on Comedy Central, uh, so he would play. Uh, so Jordan Peele, his co-star, would play uh, Obama, very you know cool, calm, collected, and then uh, Keegan as Luther would be his anger translator, just jumping up and down, screaming about all the shit that America was putting him through. 
Um, and you may not be surprised to learn that President Obama really liked this character. <laughs> and so for years, I mean, I, I was sort of r responsible for the correspondence dinner for making sure that it all came together, really starting in 2012. And that year, I think, was the first year we kind of heard through the grapevine uh, that the president was kind of wondering, can we get this Luther guy on stage? Um, so it, the idea came from him, but we ha there was an election coming that year, and so we had this moment where we're like, well, maybe implying that the president is secretly an angry black man is not a great idea <laughs> eight months before an election. Uh, so we didn't do it then. In 2013, um, you know, uh, we, um, well, let's say in 2014, there was uh, health care, so obviously that was out. In 2013, it was right after the uh, bombing at the Boston Marathon, so the idea of doing this big set piece seemed weird. In 2015, uh, we had just done terribly in the midterm elections, and there was this idea that Obama just was all out of fucks, and so he was just doing whatever he wanted, and it was kind of perfect for that. And, s and also, I had um, Keegan Michael Key, the, the actor who played Luther, uh, had been uh, invited to a holiday party, and I stalked him and then kind of cornered him against the mac and cheese and said, hey, I write the jokes for Obama. You know, maybe we can do something sometime. So I had his email, and then it just kind of came together. And my favorite part about all this was that we had only 20 minutes to rehearse because with the president, he had so little time that, you know, things that would, in Hollywood, take a week or a month or six months, you had about 20 minutes and two takes. So he rehearsed it, but every time Keegan opened his mouth, President Obama just lost it. Like, he could not <laughs> keep from laughing. And, uh, and even right beforehand, uh, he stepped backstage for a second and I was standing there and he was like, this seems pretty good, but I just, I just can't break, um, which is like the comedy ter term of art for laughing in the middle of a scene, which I was surprised the president knew. Uh, but then if you watch, uh, so President Obama and Luther the Anger Translator did their five minute routine that we had written for them. Uh, and if you watch President Obama, he keeps his head kind of tilted toward Luther but then his eyes, just at, with his peripheral vision, he's always just like going the other way. So I just, I feel like that was a moment when I, I did learn something. A lot of the times through writing jokes, I learned things about President Obama that otherwise you would have had to learn through like some sort of national security crisis. And this was one of them where this was the kind of person who was in the car on the way over and was like, okay, I know I can't laugh. I know this is funny. I'm gonna come up with a very, like complicated but effective strategy for making sure I don't laugh. And you saw that kind of personality trait in other decisions he made. So the fact that he kept it together for five minutes is not like the big accomplishment from the Obama years, but I'm still very impressed by it. <laughs> Just a tidbit, because I feel like you're underplaying your role and how important you were in making those correspondent dinners a success. Uh, the next year, 2016, I got to meet Keegan at one of these correspondent-related parties. And I was so excited because it was Keegan-Michael Key. And so uh, he was like, well, I got to go to this thing. And I ended up, now they're married. But she was a writer, so we were hitting it off. And so it turned into this like Alice in Wonderland kind of night where like I was with his now wife, but we were just following Keegan. And Keegan was like off to find the Wizard of Oz. And we had to go to like three different parties. And luckily, I was part of the entourage. But I was just like, who is Keegan trying to meet? And finally, we get to this one party in Georgetown. And we have to like weave through all these people. And at this point, I'm just tired. And finally, it's like the crowd's part. And it's David Litch. And like that, <laughs> that is who 
Keegan-Michael Key has been like, I've got to see my friend. I've got, <laughs> we've got to go to like seven different parties and find this man. So he's, he's very good at his job, even he's if he is a quitter. Question in the back. <laughs> uh, this one's for uh, David. So President Obama is known for being a really great speaker. It's one of his trademarks. But as a speechwriter, I'm sure at times you had to criticize him or you disagreed over something. What was that like? And can you share a story about some time where you and him had a back and forth over some content in a speech? Well, uh, I would say kind of two things about that. Uh, the first is that I, most of the time, any speechwriter, even even if you were the chief speechwriter at the White House, you're doing your job well if you're uh, suggesting ideas, but then also understanding that ultimately they're not your words. I mean, the way I always thought about speechwriting is my my job as a speechwriter is to suggest anything once and almost nothing twice. Um, so if there's a factual issue, you might you know you'd bring that up, but if it's a matter of style, your boss is always right. Um, and that's especially true and especially easy, frankly, when your boss is so good at speaking and writing. You know, sometimes when I, I've written for you know senators or governors and they're not at that caliber of speaker, you get frustrated. But with President Obama, usually he was also actually right, um, which made a big difference. The the area where we uh, you know where I probably had to do the most um, convincing or there was the most back and forth was with the jokes. So for example, like we so we would get 600 jokes maybe that I would read. I would try to turn that into a list of about 40, and we would bring that list to the president. And we'd always have some stuff we were really excited about and some stuff we weren't as excited about. And so one year, we brought this list into the Oval Office, and we had this joke we were really into. I didn't write it, but uh, I really liked it. And President Obama read it, and he said, you know, I don't, I don't really get that. And this was back when we were doing the charm offensive, which was trying to be nice to the Republican senators, hoping that they would then turn around and, and help us pass the legislation, which worked great. And uh, <laughs> And, but we were still trying, and, uh, and so President Obama said, I don't get this joke. And I said, well, the joke is kind of about how Congress is all like high school, um, but you have to do it in a valley girl accent or it won't work. <laughs> and, so th and he kind of gave me a look, and then that was the moment when my job was to move on. <laughs> and instead, what I said was, well, you have to say it like, uh, so I learned that like, I was talking to Ted, who was talking to Lindsay, who was talking to Mitch, and they were all like talking. And then I had this moment where I realized I had just done that in the Oval Office. <laughs> and, and President Obama looked at me and just said, yeah, that'd be funny. <laughs> if a comedian did it. <laughs> and, and so that time I took the hint and we never spoke of it again. But um, so I, I, you know, I, there were a few examples of that with, uh, with jokes in particular where I learned maybe the hard way that if you're a speechwriter, your boss is always right. Is that the worst thing you've said in the Oval Office? Uh, yeah, I think, th now I'm like, did I say something terrible in the Oval Office? Were you there? Did you transcribe it? Uh, <laughs> I, 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 were there receipts? I don't know. No, I, d I think that was probably the worst thing I said uh, in the Oval Office. What about You've Got a Friend? Oh, I, well, I sang the Golden Girls theme song to President Obama in the Oval Office, but I think that was a moment which... That was uh, actually a soft moment, Yeah, a sweet I moment. feel like it was a, a moment of great joy for all involved, specifically <laughs> me. Um, but that's a long story, so I'm, we're, we're, we're too late on time for that. But we've got it's in the book. Yeah, I did write a book about it, so you're in luck. <laughs> <laughs> we have time for two more questions, and we've got one over there upstairs. 
Hello. Uh, I apologize if Vance has been asked a lot or it's in your book. Um, many people say that President Obama's White House correspondence dinner performance in 2011 where he mocked uh, Trump for his birtherism was a key factor in Trump deciding to run for president. Do you think that's true? And if you do, do you have any thoughts about that? Um, I, I have some thoughts about it, and I'm curious what you think, because I've never met uh, President Trump, but you have. Uh, and I've never gotten a sense of his White House from being there, but you have. So I've been saying this for, for months, and I'm curious what you think. So, uh, so first of all, I, I had just started at the White House in 2011. So if um, President Trump decided to run because of what Obama said, it's not my fault. Um, so so uh, another speechwriter, John Lovett, who I'm sure some of you know from his podcast, he was at the White House and he was kind of the token funny person until he left in late 2011. So he was still in charge of that and he wrote that with, uh, with Judd Apatow and they kind of came up with this at the last minute. And I was reading drafts, so I knew they were gonna do something about Trump, but it was only at the, like, you know, the final draft that I saw on my Blackberry and I was like, oh, okay, they're really, they're going there. Um, and what I remember most about that moment was the, uh, the fact that everybody in the room, normally in the, the White House Correspondents' Dinner, you have some Democrats and some Republicans and some journalists, and you rarely get more than two of three of those groups. Um, but like, I, I mean like Reince Priebus was there, all sorts of people who would be Trump administration officials, and they were really just loving watching this guy get humiliated. Because it was a moment when, the was probably the last moment, when Republicans were just as excited about watching Donald Trump get cut down to size as Democrats were. Uh, and, and also, just to be fair, I mean, the, the jokes that um, President Obama had, you know, the, his monologue about Trump holds up, it's still really funny. Um, I think that it's probably not why he decided to run for president. I think if you have a giant ego and you think you can win, you generally run for president. I think that's, that seems to happen. And I think he thought he could win. And I also think there was, if anything, a sense of envy, that if you look at Trump, his entire life he's been trying to get the approval of Hollywood celebrities, Washington politicians, and New York media elites. And the Correspondence Center is those three groups, celebrities, journalists, politicians, the, the elite um, that he, I think, now likes to make fun of or likes to attack. And so to watch everybody kind of shower President Obama with adoration uh, because he was up there making fun of a political opponent, I think he maybe had this thought of like, if I'm the guy up there, everybody's gonna love me like that. And it turns out most of being president, even if you're a good president, is people hating you for no good reason. Um, and I think that the, the Trump administration has learned the hard way that just sitting in the chair is not what makes people like you. Yeah, well said. I don't have much to add except in addition to uh, he thinking he would win and having envy, he also had some friends in Russia that I, I can't help but be interested in seeing how that pans out. Right, that's, yeah, I guess that, the sad thing is what I just said is probably the most charitable version uh, of Yeah, I point. think you were being quite generous. I think I'm being your Luther anger translator yet again. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's just, yeah. Final question on the stairs. Um, President Obama is kind of famous for being very cool and collected, doesn't uh, react to the kind of criticism that you're just alluding to. Um, did you see behind the scenes anything different in that regard? Was he, um, did he just blow off steam like the anger management type would? And uh, it's a related question, do you think, uh, some, some people have criticized the president for being kind of too cool that he didn't get down and dirty uh, as often or as early as he might have. Uh, 
did his coolness um, hurt him in the end, do you think? I'll go first. To your first question about him being cool, he is very cool. Um, I think he was really smart, and also he's he was basically like the captain of this like winning football team or something that has both genders involved. I don't know, but the cross a winning cross country team. Uh, <laughs> but this idea that he was this leader that we all really wanted to work hard for. And so I think he was very sensitive to like, I have a few select teammates who will understand that even if I flip out on them because something has gone horribly awry, they understand that it's because something has gone awry and it needs to be changed. Um, so as opposed to when I worked in the Trump administration, you would just hear yelling through the walls all the time. It was never like that. You never heard yelling. It was. Um, everything was composed, it was all filtered down, there was a protocol to, if something needs to change, we're gonna find out why it needs to change and how it's going to change. Uh, so it was systematic in that way. But he is extremely cool. Uh, the worst thing I ever said in the Oval Office is um, we had departure photos and I had gotten to spend quite a bit of time with Charles Barkley a few years earlier during an interview and he had said, you know, your brother's so tall, uh, why are you so short? And so then for some reason I felt the need when President Obama is meeting my family and he is like, your brother's so tall because we're all in the Oval Office. And, you're, and I was like, yeah, actually this one time Charles Barkley told me that my brother was so tall and I was so short probably because my mom was creeping with the milkman. And then all of a sudden, just like you, it was just like, oh my God, I just said that out loud in the Oval Office. <laughs> and it's too loud to take it back. And President Obama being as cool as he is, much to my mother's dismay, was like, Maybe she was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, All right, sir, thank you, and let's take a photo. <laughs> uh, yeah, Liz. <laughs> well, um, no, I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I had the same experience uh, as I, I was not one of the people who was kind of in the inner circle and maybe saw more of what you're talking about, where he felt comfortable just, like, uh, letting loose. But... Um, you know, for me, one of the things I noticed was President Obama was not a yeller at all. But a, and and I wrote about this a number of times, mostly in response to me doing something sort of dumb. Wh he was very good at being able to very clearly let you know that what you had done, he, like he didn't get mad; he just got disappointed. Um, so so that ability to let you know that like what you did was not right, and you really should never do that again, uh, but without being angry. And I actually think that was something where, I, you know, when I think about how to conduct myself as, as a grown-up in the world, I do come back to that sometimes because I, he was effective without being angry. And I think sometimes we think there's a trade-off, but I think that's, that's a false choice. Um, and, and I'll just say, uh, and, and I feel like now I'm, I'm wrapping us up and I don't have anything nearly as good as a milkman story, but you had asked uh, about this sort of coolness. Um, I think there's two different versions. One is kind of personal coolness and being able to keep uh, and have some self-discipline, and the other was political. And, and one of the things that I do think we learned the hard way um, in the White House, uh, you know, everybody who was there, there was this idea that if we, if we behave like adults, everyone will behave like adults, but that's not how children work. And I think that that was one of the real things we, we did discover, was that uh, this initial idea that if we're above it all, everyone else will join us, um, and we and we'll just kind of work it out like grown-ups uh, turned out clearly not to be true and I think we were at our most effective when we basically said 
we're going you're going to behave like a grown up because you have no choice. The examples I, I wrote about were in 2011 with the debt ceiling and the standoff over that, where we kind of just assumed that everyone would do the right thing and were pretty bitterly disappointed. Versus in 2013 when the same thing happened and we said, fine, we're gonna you know this will politically be on your head if you don't if you don't do the right thing, and then suddenly people said, oh, wait a second, it could cost us our jobs if we don't do the right thing. We believe in doing the right thing. We'll do it. Um, and I think that approach did work better. Let's give a huge round of applause for Beck and David.